Welcome to our first BMJ Best Practice clinical podcast. These podcasts are designed to bring you up to speed on the latest guidelines and important updates on BMJ Best Practice topics. In this first podcast, Dr. Sheila Fight and Dr. Jawad Ahmad discuss diagnosis and treatment of hepatitis B. And now over to Sheila. I'm Dr. Sheila Fight, Senior US Clinical Lead in the BMJ Knowledge Center. And I'm very pleased to have with us today, Dr. Jawad Ahmad, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Liver Diseases at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. We'll be discussing how to diagnose hepatitis B and how to approach its treatment. Welcome, Dr. Ahmad. Thank you, Sheila. I'm very pleased to be here. So let's start with some background. What are some risk factors and diagnostic considerations for hepatitis B infection? So hepatitis B infection is really transmitted in, in three ways. So the most common way that you get hepatitis B is actually through perinatal uh, transmission. That means mother to child. Uh, so worldwide, that would be the most common way of acquiring hepatitis B infection. The other two ways that you can get it are through blood-to-blood contact. So tainted blood from someone with hepatitis B gets into your bloodstream. And then the third way is this is a sexually transmissible uh, uh, disease. There are obviously several other minor ways of getting it, but they're the three main ways of acquiring hepatitis B. Who would you treat for hepatitis B infection? So that's a little bit of more of a, a complicated uh, question uh, because uh, hepatitis B, unfortunately, is uh, one of these diseases. It's, it's, it's a virus that uh, when you get it, it's very difficult to get rid of it. Uh, so typically, it, it stays with you f- uh, for, for your life. Um, but not everybody needs to be treated. First of all, you have to obviously make a diagnosis. And part of the way you make the diagnosis and the tests that come back will instruct whether you should be a candidate for treatment. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So uh, if you obviously have risk factors for, for hepatitis B, so for instance, if you're born in a country uh, where hepatitis B is endemic, uh, and these will probably uh, these, these are likely in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Asia, uh, as well as uh, uh, the Indian subcontinent. Those those pa- those patients who come to see you, even if you're in the UK or in the US, they should be screened for hepatitis mm-hmm. B. And the way you would screen is with a, a bunch of blood tests. Initially, you would do liver enzymes, so that's your ALT, AST, alkaline phosphatase, total bit of rubin, and then you would do hepatitis B serology tests, uh, which are a little bit more complicated, and we can go over those. So let's talk about serology a bit. So yes, there, there are several tests that you can order for hepatitis B, uh, but initially when you suspect hepatitis B, there are really three tests that you should check. The first is hepatitis B surface antigen, The second is hepatitis B surface antibody. And the third is hepatitis B core antibody. Now, um, really the diagnosis of hepatitis B is based on having a positive hepatitis B surface antigen. So if you see the patient in the office and you check those three tests, if the uh, core antibody is positive, well, that implies that the patient has been exposed to hepatitis B in the past. A lot of patients can be exposed to hepatitis B, but their immune system can clear it. Um, So you may also have a positive surface antibody. What becomes a little bit more difficult is that patients, uh, since we have a vaccine for hepatitis B, patients that have been vaccinated for hepatitis B will also have a positive hepatitis B surface antibody from the vaccine, but they should not have a hepatitis B core antibody. That implies that you were actually exposed to hepatitis B. So a person that's been vaccinated should have a positive surface antibody. Persons that have been exposed will have a core antibody. Person who actually still has hepatitis B, and in fact, the definition of chronic hepatitis B 
is the persistence of hepatitis B surface antigen in the bloodstream over several months, typically we say six months. So that's how you would make a diagnosis. So those are the three initial tests. Then it becomes a little more complicated and you can do additional tests once you find out that the patient has uh, evidence of hepatitis B. And you can do additional tests once you find out that the patient has evidence of hepatitis B. So the additional test would be hepatitis B E antigen, hepatitis B E antibody, and then a hepatitis B DNA level, which you can actually quantify, meaning you can actually measure the level. So let's go back to treatment. Um, we were talking about who needs to be treated. What happens if you don't treat? Hepatitis B is a big problem uh, throughout the, the world. There's you know, uh, um, uh, many millions of, of patients with hepatitis B. The consequences are, are variable and are not, not everybody's going to, to, to get the, uh, the, the bad things that potentially can happen to you. But if you have hepatitis B, you are at risk for getting chronic liver disease, including cirrhosis. Uh, and also the, uh, there is a significant risk of getting hepatocellular carcinoma or liver cancer. Um, throughout the world, in the US even, not that it's such a high incidence of hepatitis B here or even in the UK, uh, you will see patients, particularly Asian patients, that, that uh, for the first time when they come to your office will have evidence of advanced liver disease, cirrhosis, such as ascites, uh, portal hypertension, uh, evidence of GI bleeding and encephalopathy. And unfortunately, sometimes you'll see a patient in the office the first time you see them, they have a history of hepatitis B, they'll have a, a liver cancer. So these are considerations in people who do not get treated for hepatitis B. What are the currently recommended treatments for hepatitis B? So there are several uh, approved medications for hepatitis B treatment. Uh, these, these may uh, differ uh, di depending on where you are in the world, but um, the, they are really uh, separated into two groups. One is interferon alpha, which is an injection treatment. Uh, and then there are oral agents uh, such as lamivudine, and uh, entecavir, adefavir, uh, telbivudine, um, and tenofovir. So these are oral agents that are used to suppress viral replication. Is the situation similar to hepatitis C for genotype? Do genotypes matter in prognosis and treatment recommendations? Not so much. So um, with, with hepatitis B, yes, there are genotypes. Uh, a little confusingly, uh, they're, they're, you, they use letters as opposed to numbers as we do with hepatitis C. Um, they, they don't really have the same prognostic uh, uh, implications as the uh, as some of the ones that, uh, in hepatitis C. Uh, we do check them, and sometimes it's more of a research tool, and in, depending on what part of the world you are, some of the genotypes uh, uh, suggest a greater risk for hepatocellular carcinoma, but they really don't change uh, your treatment algorithm. Uh, you've mentioned the serologies and what defines chronic hepatitis B infection. What defines successful treatment of that infection? This is, again, very different from hepatitis C, but in hepatitis B, the, the aim of treatment is to uh, reduce uh, or hopefully uh, uh, make the hepatitis B DNA level uh, zero. Uh, so the way we think about treating hepatitis B typically is that we, we look for evidence of virological response, meaning the hepatitis B DNA level becomes negative. We're obviously also looking to make sure the, the liver gets better. So typically these patients have elevated liver enzymes, so the liver enzymes also should improve. The real uh, goal uh, of hepatitis B treatment is to make someone go from uh, a situation where they have a positive hepatitis B surface antigen uh, to a situation where they have a positive hepatitis B surface antibody. So that's seroconversion. 
Uh, that's actually very difficult to achieve with the current medication that we have. Another marker that we sometimes use, and with hepatitis B, again, it's much more complicated than hepatitis C. We typically separate patients into hepatitis B E antigen positive patients or hepatitis B E antigen negative patients. Um, and really, they, 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 they're treated kind of in a similar way, but the goals of treatment are a little bit different. So with hepatitis B E antigen positive patient, the goal is obviously to bring the DNA level down to zero, but also to make the patient go from a situation where they have a positive hepatitis B E antigen to a situation where they have a positive hepatitis B E antibody. So they lose the E antigen and they gain the E antibody. In patients that don't express the E antigen already, so that's basically to do with the, 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 the sequence of the virus. Some patients have a, a virus that doesn't want to make E antigen. So you can't really uh, detect that in serum, but they still have a high DNA level. In those patients, what you're hoping to achieve is to make the DNA level zero. The problem with hepatitis B is that the treatment length uh, can be indefinite because um, unless the patient develops the surface antibody, when you stop the medication, there are, you run a high risk that the patient will relapse, meaning the hepatitis B DNA level will increase again when you stop the medication. How common is it to actually get the, the goal seroconversion? Okay, so this will depend on several factors, and there are racial differences as well in terms of how likely these, uh, these things are to happen. So with, with patients uh, who have a positive E, e antigen, uh, it's a little more likely than patients with a positive uh, E antibody to begin with. In addition, the type of medication that you use will also uh, make a difference, but it's usually in the order of only a few percent, five or 10 percent of patients uh, will develop surface antibody, meaning they convert their surface antigen to surface antibody. So it's not a very common situation. So what we're hoping to achieve actually is just to bring their DNA level down. And so I always tell patients when they come and we start them on these medications that these may be medications that you have to take indefinitely. Do, do we see resistance to the currently approved medications? Right. So that's uh, a concern that we have. Uh, so when you have a situation where you're treating a virus with medication that you have to take uh, potentially indefinitely, then yes, there is a risk that the virus mutates and you develop resistance to the medication. This was particularly a, uh, the, the, the case when we had just one oral agent. So going back 15 or 20 years when we just had lamivudine, this was a very common situation such that within a year, 10 to 15% of patients develop resistance, but if you carried on giving the medication within three or four years, more than half or sometimes even a three-quarters of patients will develop resistance, meaning that you the, the medicine does not work anymore. With the newer agents, the uh, the, the current, the, the mainstay are tenofovir and entecovir. These are much less common, but again, they haven't been around as long. So if we continue using them, then this will be a concern that we will develop resistance to even the newer agents. This, that is not a concern with interferon, uh, but most patients don't like to take interferon because it's an injection treatment and it does have some side effects. Uh, but really, resistance is not a problem uh, with that. And in fact, interferon probably has a, a greater chance of causing that surface antigen seroconversion than the oral agents do. But most patients prefer to be on an oral agent uh, as opposed to the injection treatment. Let's move on to talk for a minute about some special populations, children. Uh, children with chronic hepatitis B. So this is a very interesting situation. So um, most children actually do not need to be treated because um, hepatitis B is a, a kind of a, 
uh, interesting virus in that you can have a, as we mentioned before, when you check blood work, you check a hepatitis B DNA level. If you check it in a child, um, most children have very, very, very high hepatitis B DNA levels. And yet you check their liver enzymes and they will be completely normal. And in some of those patients, if you do a liver biopsy also, you will see really no evidence of any active hepatitis B. So this is what we call the immune tolerant phase. Now, some of these uh, get a little complicated. And, you know, uh, the meetings that we have on hepatitis B every few years, they change the nomenclature. But immune tolerance basically means that your immune system tolerates the hepatitis B. So it doesn't really do much to you. Uh, the level can be very high, but it's not doing anything. Those people don't require treatment. So typically children don't require treatment for hepatitis B unless you can show that the hepatitis B is, is, is causing a problem in the liver. That usually changes by the time people get to their 20s uh, when uh, the immune tolerant phase usually uh, changes into something else. So the follow-up to adulthood would be important. Yes, that's very important. So when when I see patients, obviously I'm an adult hepatologist. Um, they they the hepatitis B patients can come when they're in college, for instance, and they they they've been checked and they have evidence that they have hepatitis B surface antigen positivity. Even those patients don't necessarily need to be treated. So what we would do is we would monitor. So patients come if if the liver enzymes are completely normal and the patient's young, still in their early twenties. Uh, typically, you would just monitor those patients. The patients that need to be treated, and again, guidelines are, are uh, issued by a lot of the societies in the UK, uh, in Europe, and in America, and, and they they basically they, they they show that just because the hepatitis B DNA level is very high, particularly in the young patient, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to treat them immediately, uh, particularly if the liver enzymes are completely normal, and that, that by liver enzymes I mean the ALT and the AST levels, but. When, they, when patients come and they have evidence that the ALT or AST are more elevated, and particularly if the patient is now you know, in their mid-20s, late-20s, then they're much less likely to be immune tolerant. And what you can do in those situations, there are additional tests that you can do to suggest whether that patient needs to be treated. So one would do a, a liver biopsy. Uh, we've moved away from that somewhat because of the, you know, the complication risk with the biopsy is, is small, but not, not negligible. But that really is a very good test to tell, well, look, yeah, there is evidence that the hepatitis B is actually causing damage to the liver. Uh, and now there are some more non-invasive ways to, to look at the liver other than just imaging uh, with ultrasound, MRI, or CAT scan, and that would be using uh, liver elastography or a fibro scan. What about pregnant patients? So yes, this is a, a, a very interesting topic. So um, obviously, given how prevalent hepatitis B is in the world, there will be women who get pregnant who have hepatitis B. So are they at risk for, uh, for the baby to get hepatitis B? What we do is uh, in the third trimester of pregnancy, so there, there's no indication to treat during the first two uh, trimesters of pregnancy, but in the third trimester of pregnancy, uh, typically the risk to the baby is related to the amount of virus in the mother. Um, so if the viral load in the mother is very high, and that usually is more than 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7, or 10 to the 8, that means you know a million, 10 million, 100 million, um, then we typically would recommend treatment with an oral agent, you can't use interferon, to decrease the, the viral load in the mother to try and prevent infection in the, in the neonate. Now remember, um, the, it's very important actually to try and prevent that because when neonates or children, very young children, get infected with hepatitis B, they are much more likely to develop chronic hepatitis B later than, for instance, when an adult gets hepatitis B. Um, their, their immune systems are not mature, so they really can't clear the virus. So it's important to try and stop that uh, at, at, at around the time of birth. 
so we would treat pregnant women with high viral loads to try and reduce the risk to the, uh, the infant. Um, but we won't know uh, really for a year or two uh, whether the baby has developed hepatitis B. So pregnant women should get treated if they have a high viral load in the last trimester of pregnancy. Let's finish up with uh, the main question. Does successful treatment of hepatitis B reduce the risk of cirrhosis and liver cancer? Yes, yeah, so that's actually a very good success story uh, because we've had now successful treatment for about 15 or 20 years. And how, how do we see that? I mean, one of the, 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 the things that we see in, in transplant population is that we hardly ever transplant someone for bad liver disease from hepatitis B. We still see hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, and remember, th there is a lag time. These the viral diseases of the liver cause damage over many, many years. So to see an improvement, you're not going to see it overnight. But I can tell you that successful treatment, meaning keeping the hepatitis B DNA level undetectable or hopefully causing service antigen seroconversion, definitely reduces the risk of cirrhosis uh, and hepatocellular carcinoma. And in fact, can also reverse to a certain extent, advanced fibrosis in patients. So that, yes, definitely hepatitis B treatment has been very successful. Thank you very much to Dr. Ahmad and listeners. To find out more, please click the link in the podcast information to sign up to a free trial of BMJ Best Practice and visit the hepatitis B topic. We also have a podcast about hepatitis C in the SoundCloud playlist.